Welcome to Frontline Church, South OKC's podcast, where each week we upload a new sermon from our sermon series. If you have any questions or concerns or need prayer for anything, feel free to reach out at hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you. The scripture for today's sermon comes from Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. The word of God speaks to us. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God had caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, that they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is God's word to us. Speed to God. Hey, good morning, guys. So good to see you. If we've not had the chance to meet, uh, my name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of our pastors. It's good to worship Jesus with you this morning. Um, hey, I want to I say, like, there's people from all over the map today in the room Uh, Not everybody here is uh, sure what they think about Jesus or Christianity, and I just want to say that's okay. It's actually good to have you. It's an honor for us to have you in here, and uh, I just want to invite you just as you have questions, as you hear stuff that produces more questions, hey, we're down for all of it. Let let us get you coffee. We want to meet with you and process as you kind of wrestle with some of the claims of Christianity. So it's an honor to have you with us this morning, even if if you don't believe or not sure what you believe. Um, everybody else, man, Genesis, we've got some work to do today. Uh, chapters 1 and 2, we're going to spend some time. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we are going to get after it. Sound good? All right, Father, thank you for today. Thank you for these two chapters, chapter 1 and 2 of our origin story. And I pray today that you would shape your people through your word. Would you shape us? Would you form us? God, all the ways that we're scattered on this topic, all the ways that we're confused, all the ways that there's pain and hurt and brokenness. God, we just submit all of that to you and ask that you would meet your people and shape your people by your word. And I want to thank you especially that whatever is true is also good. Whatever is true is also beautiful. And we don't want to believe things and know that they're true and think they're bad. We want to love the truth. And we just say thank you that nothing bad ever came out of you. (laughs) Thank you that nothing... Uh, nothing hurtful ever came out of you. No directive that you ever gave was to crush life. It was to make life. And so we, we trust you. You are a good father, and we want to submit to you today. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Hey, so we've covered a lot of ground in Genesis, and we've talked about all kinds of things. But today, in chapter 2, we're going to talk about not just our origin story as humans, not just what it means to be made in God's image in a generic way, but today we're going to talk specifically about gender and sexuality, what it means to be made as male and female. What could possibly be controversial about that? 
in a culture like ours, what could possibly be problematic about this at all, right? Here's the reality that when it comes to this topic, as a culture, we're massively confused. Uh, we're really confused. We don't know what to do with men, and we don't even know how to define what it is to be a woman. There's a lot of questions here that our culture doesn't have good answers on, and so today this is actually helpful not just to be generic, but to get a little bit more specific and talk very particularly about what it is to be made as male and female. And I know that this is going to raise more questions than it answers. Um, I, I would ask that you would give me a little bit of grace today, and knowing that I get one sermon on this, uh, a prominent Christian leader, he took 129 extended lectures to address this very topic. I think if I tried that, we would kill Frontline Church so fast, it wouldn't even be funny. And so I'm only going to get one of these today, so this will be a little bit of a longer journey through Genesis 1 and 2, but I think this will be helpful for you. And I just want to say that I know there's pain in the room on this, man. I know that there's heartache. I know that there's confusion. I know that there's going to uh, be some questions that are created out of this. And I just want you to know, like, you are loved by God and you are loved by us. And we're not afraid of your questions. We don't claim to have all the answers, but we are, we are committed to walking with you. And we won't be offended uh, by, your, by your questions or by the, the burdens that you're bringing in. All of that matters, okay? So with that in mind, here are five things that I need you to see, five things about what it is to be male and female, that if you're to take out any one of these things, the whole thing falls apart. There may be more that we could say. In fact, there is more that we could say. But these are the five most essential things that you need to grab a hold of if you're going to understand what the Bible teaches about this topic. And so with that in mind, here's the first thing that I want you to see. I want you to notice the unity of male and female, the unity of man and woman. Or another way to say this, what is it that you and I as men and women share in common? And it's actually quite a lot. Let's go to Genesis chapter 1, look at verse 27. So God, it says, created man in his own image, or humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful. And multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So what is it that men and women share in common? What, what is it that makes us unified together? Well, here it is in Genesis chapter 1, and we don't see this as mind-blowing, but it is mind-blowing because God made humanity in his own image and likeness. That whether you're a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, you are, you are given from God. You are assigned from God unbelievable value and worth and dignity as the pinnacle of his creation. This is a big deal. In fact, you are made in his image, and we've already talked about this in weeks past, so I don't need to belabor it, but simply what that means is that you as men or women are called to represent God in the world and call, called to reflect God in the world. That, that you and I together as men and women are doing this work of representing and reflecting God shoulder to shoulder. What that means is it's not that it's God and then men and then women and then the rest of creation down here. And it's not that it's God and then women and then men and the rest of creation down here. But it's God, men and women, shoulder to shoulder, as kings and queens reflecting, reigning, and ruling over the world on behalf of God, representing God and everything else underneath us. 
That's the way that God has designed this to work. And so what that means is that the value that you have is not just that you're a boy or a girl, but it goes beyond that. It goes past that. The value that you have is whether you are a boy or a girl, a man or a woman, you are made in the image and likeness of God. We share that in common. And that's a really big deal. That actually has changed the course of Western civilization. That's why like, we can have safe families here and talk about the need to take care of these kids that in other cultures throughout our ancient past, they would have said have no value or have no worth. And yet no one here is thinking that. We're all thinking, yeah, these kids are valuable and they matter and we should help them. Why? Because they're made in the image of God. This has totally changed Western civilization. And I want you to see that when you lose this, when you lose this first most important thing, the whole thing falls apart. In fact, the very first step towards losing this is a step towards subjugation and objectification and misogyny, often that is affecting women particularly. So let me just walk you through ancient culture's view on women and how this has been mishandled when you lose the unity of male and female, of men and women, or you, you lose what you and I as men and women share in the image of God. In the Babylonian creation narrative, Enuma Elish, which we've talked a little bit about in the last few weeks, it's a, it's a narrative that is giving a, a creation myth of like who people are and who the gods are and all these things. And what's fascinating about the Enuma Elish is that it doesn't mention women particularly at all has nothing to say for women. And you contrast that with Genesis 1 and 2, and it's breathtaking, the dignity and the specificity that God has given to women. And Plato's work on the explanation of human beings, it's a work called the Timaeus, and in the Timaeus he says this about the reason for women's existence. Quote, according to our likely account, all male-born humans who lived lives of cowardice or injustice were reborn in the second generation as women. In other words, women don't just exist because God wanted them to exist, but they exist because they were men first and they failed at being men and so they came back as women. Aristotle also had a low view of women. He said that females were, quote, a kind of mutilated male. He goes on to say this. He says, females are imperfect males, accidentally produced to the father's inadequacy, by the father's inadequacy or by the malign influence of a moist south wind. A, a horrible, degrading view of women. Josephus, the Jewish historian, said this. He said, a woman is inferior to her husband in all things. At one point in the Quran, it reads this. It says, men have authority over women because Allah has made one superior to the other. As for those from whom you fear disobedience, admonish them and send them to beds apart and beat them. A low view of women. Sadly, at times, even in church history, and I would say this is not the norm. In fact, the church has done the most good for women. That would be my argument. It's done the most good for the dignity of, of men and women together, but especially women who are the largest growing part of the early church. But there had been times in church history where the church has been more influenced and shaped by culture on this issue than they have by the word of God. Here's, here's one of those moments from Tertullian, who otherwise was a good church father, but had a really horrible, shameful view of women. He said this, he said, quote, you're the devil's gateway. You're the unsealer of that forbidden tree. You're the first deserter of the divine law. You are she who persuaded him whom the devil was not valiant enough to attack. You destroyed so easily 
God's image, man, on account of your desert, that is death, even the Son of God had to die. And we could go on and on and on, but throughout history, what I'm trying to get you to see is that when you and I lose the unity of men and women, we lose what we share in common as divine image bearers of God, image bearers of this divine God. When we lose that, what happens is misogyny and subjugation and objectification. And I wish I could stand up here and tell you, and modern culture has fared so much better, but unfortunately, that's also not the case. Every single second, think about this, every single second, over $3,000 is spent on porn, much of of which objectifies women and glorifies things like violence and rape and incest. Sex-selective abortions continue to be an epidemic worldwide. According to the UN Populations Fund, at least 143 million women and girls are not alive today due to sex-selective abortions. It's it's incredibly horrible and evil. According to our own government's findings, one in three women have experienced severe physical violence from an intimate partner in their lifetime. One in three women, you think about a room this size and what that means for the stories that are in this room. I mean, I know some of your stories. I know that in this room, there are people who have seen horrible things done at the hand of a man in this room. This stat blew me away and brought me to tears. The number of American troops killed in Afghanistan and Iraq between 2001 and 2012 was 6,488. The number of American women who are murdered by current or ex-male partners during that same time frame was 11,666. That's nearly double the amount of casualties that were lost during the war. Double, almost, the amount of casualties here at home because of the violence of men against women. And I just want to say to, to, to you ladies, if you're in the room, I just want to say to you as a pastor and as a brother, if you are here and you find yourself in a relationship to a man who is abusive, who is a bully, who is throwing his weight around to hurt you, that is not okay, that's not right, and every one of our pastors is at your service to help you. We will do whatever we can to get you help. I promise you, your story is not too complicated for us to get the right insight and counsel from the outside to figure out what to do. We will come to your aid. We will help you. We will get you safe. And I want you to know that as a pastor, if you're a man in this room and you're a bully or you're abusive or you throw your weight around or you do anything to to bring harm to a woman, you should be ashamed of yourself. You should be ashamed of yourself. You should allow that shame to drive you into repentance and doing the right thing. And I want you to know that you are not just out of step with the gospel, if that's you. You're not just out of step with the gospel, but you are currently living under the judgment of God, if that's you. That you will have to answer to God the Father for how you are treating his daughters. And 1 Peter 3, it says that if you are married and you fail to show honor to your wife, and if you fail to live with your wife in an understanding way, that your prayers before God are hindered. This is a weighty thing, and me and the rest of our pastors are calling you to repent and change the way that you relate to women. Friends, God made man and female, men and women together, in his image and likeness. And when we lose that, when we lose that unity, horrible things happen. Now, I wish I could say that radical and reactionary feminism has been a great help to us, but it actually has not. In fact, radical and reactionary feminism is sort of like trying to treat a broken arm with chemotherapy. 
It just is misreading the diagnosis, and it's trying to poison the patient, and it doesn't work. Now, this is the part of the sermon where I'll start to get a lot less amens from you guys, I'm sure. But l- let me say it like this. I-, I, do, I do want you to understand that much of first wave feminism was actually rooted in a good response to horrible evil and injustice. It was actually trying to fight for the fact that we were made in the image of God, male and female, and that there's equal value, dignity, and worth here. And so much of first wave feminism was, was doing positive good and reacting and responding to that. But historically what's happened is that we've seen several waves of feminism come and go ever since. And most scholars, not even Christian scholars, just scholars in general, would now say that we're on our fourth wave of feminism. And this new modern day current feminism, this fourth wave feminism, is, is I would say, absolutely evil in every way. Uh, here's what fourth wave feminism sounds like. Arena Dunn said, was famous for quoting this phrase, a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. Um, Another feminist scholar, John Stoltenberg, wrote a a horrible piece about men, and in that he referred to healthy masculinity as an oxymoron. And here's what he said. He said, talking about healthy masculinity is like talking about healthy cancer. That's fourth-wave feminism, and it's wrong. It's evil. In June of 2014, American journalist Sarah Jong tweeted the following, Has anyone considered funding an empirical study as to whether killing all men will, on average, make women safer? Geez, I'm just asking. She's also the same person who who has popularized the hashtag, hashtag kill all men. And when someone suggested that she limit it to kill all bad men, here was her response. Fine, but that the end result of that policy would also just end up with the same result of killing all men. In other words, all men are toxic, all men are bad, your masculinity is the problem, and you need to do away with it if you're going to be okay and safe for the people in your life. And I just want you to see this, friends. I just want you to see this, that this is a step away from what God has designed for men and women. That this is actually not in step with the truth of Genesis 1 and 2. And to speak that way, about 50% of the human race who are made in the image of God just because of the, the, the gender that they happen to have is, is not only detrimental and a disservice to all men everywhere and, by the way, to women in our society, but it's also a, a horrible, evil thing to say to young boys. Any ideology that stokes enmity or competition or negation, or dishonor between men and women, any ideology on either side of the spectrum, isn't from God. In fact, it's demonic. And you'll see in just a minute, it's actually rooted in the sin of Genesis chapter 3 in the fall, that ever since day one, the enemy has been trying to come against men and women and create animosity where God has intended for us to be shoulder to shoulder as image bearers reflecting him in the world. We need a recovery of the heart of God behind the fact that he made us as men and he made us as women and men and women have value, dignity, and worth and one is not above the other and one does it not need the other that you and I were made together in the image of God. But that's not all scripture says. It's gonna tell us a few other things that we need to wrestle with and that leads to the second thing I want you to see which is the diversity of man and woman. It's not just the case that you and I are made as men and women, men and women co-equal in value, worth, and dignity. That's true, and nothing can ever make that untrue. Men and women, though we are equal, are not interchangeable. 
Yes, we share glory together as human beings, but also we carry a unique and gendered glory that God himself thought up and designed. In fact, in a very real way, this is fascinating to think about, there is no such thing as being a generic human being. There is no human being generically that there are only boys who grew up to be men and there are only girls who grew up to be women. That God actually made us in our very being, yes, image bearers, but engendered image bearers of God. And that profound diversity is intentional on his part and is beautiful on his part. In fact, what I love about Genesis is in Genesis 1, we see God addressing two Hebrew words. We've mentioned these nerdy Hebrew words in the past. Tohu, which means formless, and bohu, which means empty. And what we see happening in Genesis chapter 1 and what's commonly called the days of creation is the first three days, God is bringing form to what is formless. And then the second set of three days, he's filling what he's formed. So he forms it and then he fills it. That's what God does in Genesis chapter 1. And guess what happens in Genesis chapter 2? That same idea of tohu and bohu are present in the Garden of Eden where God creates Adam primarily to address the forming work in the garden that needs to be done. And he creates Eve primarily to address the filling work that needs to be done in the Garden of Eden. So yes, we image God together, but how we image God is actually dependent upon, it's contingent upon, it's, it's based in and rooted in the assigned sex and gender that God gave you at birth. That you image God differently if you're a boy as opposed to a girl, or if you're a girl as opposed to a boy. One is not more important than the other. Both are needed, both are necessary, but you just carry out different essence that leads to different roles. And this is beautiful. This is good. So here's what I want you to see. Adam as the archetype for all men and Eve as the archetype for all women. If you were to ask me, do you believe Adam and Eve were real people? Yes, I believe that they were real people. I believe that they were created by God and placed inside of a real garden, and we could get into the specifics and details of all of that later, but I also believe that Adam is an archetype for all men, and I believe that Scripture teaches that Eve is an archetype for all women. There's something in their creational purpose and intent that you're supposed to look at Adam, and if you're a man, go, that's why I'm here. And you're supposed to look at Eve if you're a woman and go, that's why I'm here. So two things about Adam that I want you to see and two things about Eve that I want you to see. The first with Adam is that Adam was created outside of the garden and then he was placed inside the garden to work it and to keep it. Here's what it says in Genesis 2.15. The Lord God, he took the man, he put him in the garden of Eden. Why? To work it and to keep it. The unique way that Adam carries out his cultural mandate and his masculinity in the garden is by working the garden. And that word work, think of cultivate, right? It's to form. It's to take what's there and make it better. It's to cultivate it. It's to form it. It's to bring it into order. This is why we see Adam naming the animals in chapter 2. Because what Adam is doing here is taking this, this kind of garden that God has, has created and he's cultivating it and he's forming it and he's bringing it under order and, and he's... And and he's making it function the way that God intended for the garden to function. And this word keep comes from the Hebrew word shamar, which means to protect or to guard or to uh, be a bodyguard over or to, to be someone that is, that is standing watch as a watchman over. That God placed Adam in the garden to form it, cultivate it, and to guard it, to protect it, to keep it safe. 
Now, friends, that is why if you think about a man's biology, men are literally created by God with the specific biology that they have is because men were created to cultivate and to protect. I want you to see this, man. Your biology, like what makes you a man, is not just the fact that you've got an XY chromosome. It's not just the fact that you've got male sexual organs. That, that's like a good starting place of what makes you a man. But also what makes you a man is the ways that God intentionally wired your biology to be the way it is. And your biology is not random or unimportant like your eye color. Your biology tells you something about theology. That the way God made your body is telling you something about the way that God made you for your purpose. This is what's behind Pope John Paul II's amazing work on theology of the body. Your body is telling you something about God and your purpose in this world. Think about it like this. On average, most men are taller than most women. On average, men carry about two to two-thirds as much more muscle mass than women. On average, most men would win an arm wrestling con- contest against a woman. Men have considerably more fast-twitch muscle fibers than women. Men's hemoglobin levels, which leads to higher oxygen, oxygen delivery in the bloodstream, are on average about 12% higher than most women. Why? Was that random? Was God just doing something that had no purpose? No, no, no. Here's why God made men to be strong. Here's why God filled men with a holy aggression, meant to be used in a good way. It's so, so that men would use their physical strength to what? To protect those in their life, to be willing to fight for the right thing, to lay themselves down in the protection of women and children in their lives. This is one of the reasons why God made men, on average, stronger than women. Not to throw your weight around, not to be a bully, not to use your weight for the, for the crushing of other people, but to use your strength, literally, for the good of this world. That's why he made you strong. And in addition to that, Adam was created first. Now, this is an interesting thing to think about. Saying that Adam was created first is not the same thing as saying that Adam was created better than Eve. you got to remember what we've already established. Adam is not better than Eve. Eve is not better than Adam. That God made both male and female in his image and in his likeness, and none is better than the other. But it does matter that God made Adam first. That actually has significance and meaning. In fact, the Apostle Paul is going to pick that same idea up in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, as one of the explanations for why he only allows men to be elders in the church, pastors in the church. Not because men are uh, you know, more theologically astute than women. That's not the case. Not because men are smarter than women. That's not the case. My wife is far smarter than I am. And I know some of you jokers, your wife is a lot smarter than you. There's a lot of women in this room that would just ace us to death on any test or whatever else. It's not because women are less gifted than men. Have you ever seen the women in this church? They're incredibly gifted. They're amazing. So why? Why would God only allow men to serve as pastors in the church? Because one of the key roles that a pastor does in the church is to guard and protect doctrine and fight against wolves. And that's a job that women should get the benefit of not having to do that as their own responsibility. God created Adam first, and what that means is that God created men to go first and to take responsibility and to take initiative and to take ownership. That doesn't mean that women can't lead. My gosh, women can lead, but men are called to to take responsibility. This is a a thing that I'm teaching my son right now, and this would be a good lesson for all men in this room. It may not be your fault, but guess what? It is your 
It is your responsibility, all right? It may not be your fault, but it is your responsibility. And it doesn't matter where God has placed you. It may not be your fault, but whatever is there is your responsibility. Take charge by the grace of God and initiate and do the right thing. Do the next right thing at the next time. This is what God placed Adam in the garden to do, was to lead. In fact, I find it fascinating that Adam is the lover in the story, and Eve is the beloved in the story. Adam is the one who initiates even with love and with blessing and with singing, and this is something that men are called to do. We're called to initiate in such a way that the women in our lives feel our love and feel our initiation of blessing and feel our, hey, Here's our strength, and we're building you a place that's safe so that you can thrive and so that you can flourish. That's why God put Adam in the garden. Now, you might go, well, if you take that theology too far, it's going to produce abusive, heavy-handed men who subjugate women. And I would say nothing could be further from what's actually true. That's actually completely false. Dr. Bradford Wilcox is a sociologist at the University of Virginia, and he's published a monumental study and a couple of books you can find. You can just Google him and find some books. He's published a study on the difference between church-going Protestant men who are in churches that you might you might classify as more theologically conservative, where there's clear kind of roles defined for men and women or whatever. And then he's taken those guys and he's contrasted them with mainline uh, denomination guys who are part of more uh, progressive churches that maybe have a lower like view of the authority of Scripture. And then he's contrasted that with guys that don't attend church. And then he's contrasted that with guys that don't even claim to be Christians. And y- y- this, is, this, this shouldn't surprise us at all, but... The, the ones that are consistently church-going men in Protestant churches with clearly defined, here's what it means to be a man, here's what it means to be a woman, how do we function, the, they are the least likely to divorce their wives. They're the least likely to abuse their wives. They're the most likely to be engaged husbands and fathers. They're the most likely to take ownership and household labor. And their wives report the highest levels of happiness and emotional fulfillment out of every other group. Don't take my word for it. Read his research. It's out there and it's unbelievable. So men, this is why you were created, right? Let's talk about Eve as the archetype of femininity. What does it mean to be a woman? What does it mean to be a woman? Well, it doesn't just mean that you have two X chromosomes, and it doesn't just mean that you have female sexual organs. That's a great starting place and a good answer to the question. But it also means something beyond that. When you look at Eve, here's what we find. The first thing is that Eve was created to be a helper. Look at verse 18 of chapter 2. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And then in verse 20, it says this, The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. By the way, I love this story prior to this because God basically parades all the animals before Adam. And he's kind of like, oh man, a sheep and a goat. And he's like, there's no one for him, right? And, and then it's not until verse 21, it says, So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Now, this idea of you as a woman being created to be a helper, I don't know how this lands with you, but when I even say it out loud, it sort of kind of sounds like, wah, wah, you know, like men are created to guard and protect and cultivate and blah, 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 and then women, you're created to help. And that can sound really offensive. That can sound really unimportant and really unhelpful, actually, but... 
let's remember what this word is. This word in Hebrew is azer. It sounds like razor, but without the R, azer. And friends, this word is only used 21 times in the Old Testament, 21 times. Do you know how many times it's referenced, uh, it's referred to as, as women being helpers? Two. Two times it's used about women being helpers, and both are here in Genesis chapter two. How many times is it referenced outside of that? 19. And out of the 19 times that it's referenced, they all refer to God himself as our helper. Friends, this is not a bad word. This is not a negative concept. It is not picturing some woman standing in a corner holding a tray of drinks just ready to wait on and help the men in her life. That is not the picture here. The picture is of a warrior rescuer who has strength and power and uses strength and power to help those in their life. That's what God is for the people of Israel. He is their helper and their their comfort and their strength. And that's what God has placed women on this earth for, is to be this helper, this powerful lifesaver. And and, and women, this is how you function. This, This is something that God has placed inside of you. In addition to that, Eve was created to be a life giver. Look at Genesis 3, verse 20. Here's what it says. It says, And the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Eve literally means life giver. And what's fascinating about this is that Eve is doing the thing that God was doing in Genesis 1 where he fills the earth, right? He, he, he forms it, but then he fills the earth. Well, he placed Adam there to form the garden, and now he's placing Eve here to fill the garden, to literally produce life. God gave women the ability to have a womb that is a hospitable environment, for the, the birth of a child, to grow a child, to nurture a child, and then eventually your, your body, God made you to be able to give birth to a baby and then to be able to feed that baby with your own body. It's unbelievable. It's magnificent. And what I'm wanting you to see is that, ladies, your, your, your unique biology is telling you something about theology, that if you have the ability to nurture a child in your womb, what do you think God's placed you here for? to nurture those in your life, to produce life in this world. And I know that there's the pain of of infertility in this room and miscarriage in this room. And I know that there's the pain of some of you wanting children and not able to have children. But friends, being a life giver is not just about having babies. It is that, and that's a big deal, but it's also just the way that you are. Eve is a life giver in every sense of the word, and you ladies have been placed here by God to be life givers in every sense of the word. I remember when I got married in our apartment, I had moved into our apartment before we got married. My wife still lived at home, and uh, I, I think I had like a poster on the wall and a bed. And that was the extent of my apartment. It was not a hospitable environment for a, play, for a person to live. It had no life. And I remember coming home one day a couple of weeks after we got married, and there was like music playing, and there was candles on, and, and it was, you know, it was like, what's happening? There's art on the walls. There's furniture. People can like walk in and sit down and enjoy being here and living here. My wife had brought life to our dead apartment complex. And I, I don't say that in a trite way because... That's what she continues to do in every way ever since. Everything about my wife is bringing life where she goes. She is a life giver in every sense of the word. So friends, here's the point. In your very essence, whether you are a man or a woman, yes, you're created equal by God and value, worth, and dignity, but you are made uniquely different to image God out of your assigned sex and gender. 
This is beautiful and it matters. And it leads me to the third thing that I want you to see, which is the interdependence of man and woman. And let me just say it like this. We need each other. We actually need each other. We need to notice what is different about the other and we need to honor it. We need to call it out. We need to celebrate it. We need to support it. We need to do whatever we can to just just acknowledge the fact that God made us to work together. Look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. The very first time in all of Scripture up to this story that we hear the phrase, something is not good, and it's man by himself. God did not want a world with just one gender. He wanted a world with men and with women. Eve is a perfect fit for Adam, but she's different from him. She compliments him, but he can look at her and recognize that she is like him. This is the interdependence of man and woman. Now, I realize that I think I've just lost my ability to get you guys to read any of the books that I think you should read. I've kind of given up hope as a pastor that I'll ever get you to read the books that I think you should read. But if there's one book that I would urge you to read, it's Abigail Favalli's Genesis of Gender. It's a fantastic book. It's unbelievable. Please get this book and please read this book. And here's what she says about this, this unique idea of our interdependence. She says, at last, Adam immediately recognizes and the silent declaration of her body that she is both like him, more like him than any other earthly creature, and not like him. Their difference is complementary but asymmetrical. This is not a mirror image or a polar opposite. She resembles him in their shared humanity, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, but differs in the feminine form of her humanity. Genesis affirms a balance of the sameness and the difference between the sexes. This is a delicate balance that is difficult but necessary to maintain. Most theories of gender lose this balance, varying into extremes of uniformity, men and women are interchangeable, or polarity, Men are from Mars, women are from Venus. Both extremes lose the fruitful tension expressed here in Genesis. And there is this fruitful tension that God has created men and women to to co-rule the world together, but just different in how we do that. And that difference is beautiful, not bad. It's valuable, not something that's degrading. Friends, the the world needs boys and the world needs girls. The world needs men And the world needs women. The world needs husbands, and the world needs wives, and the world needs fathers, and it also needs mothers too. I love these words from G.K. Chesterton. He said, If I set the sun beside the moon, and I set the land beside the sea, and if I set the town beside the country, and if I set man beside woman, I suppose some fool will talk about one being better. We need both. Or the way that the Apostle Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 11 He says, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Women, you cannot say, I don't need my brothers. You need your brothers. And brothers, you cannot say, I don't need my sisters. No, you need your sisters. This is the interdependence of men and woman. And that leads to the fourth thing that I want you to see, which is the brokenness of man and woman. We know the story, 
but tragedy strikes in chapter three and everything falls apart and goes wrong. And this includes our gender and sexuality. Now we're gonna talk about the fall more fully in the next two weeks, but suffice it to say that this place of our gender that's meant to be a place where we uniquely image God is the place where sin attacks. It is the place where sin attacks. Genesis 3 verse 6 says this, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Why did God make Eve? To be a helper. And here in this moment, is she helping her husband? No, she's actually helping her husband into sin. So her gendered sphere of activity to be a helper is broken and goes, goes awry. Now, where is Adam? Off fighting a war? No. Like a dummy, he's standing right next to her. He's literally watching this whole interaction unfold. He's letting a serpent lie and tempt to his wife, and he does nothing about it. In fact, he becomes passive and actually joins in on her sin. Friends, they were called to represent God in the world and to reflect God in the world. They were called to form and fill the earth. And instead of forming the earth, they deformed the earth. And instead of filling the earth, they filled it with brokenness and sin and dysfunction. Our gender goes wrong at the fall. And now these kings and queens or this king and this queen, they're running from God. They're hiding. They're putting fig leaves on to pretend to be something that they're not so that they can avoid the sense of shame that they feel. And here's where the gender wars really started was in Genesis chapter three. Notice what happens in verse nine. But the Lord God, he called to the man and he said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? (coughs) Excuse me. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Adam, just a few verses prior to this, was singing when he saw this woman. He was celebrating God's gift of this woman. He was was celebrating her. And now here, what he's doing is he's blaming her and saying, he's actually blaming God for giving her. Like, this is your fault, God. Had you not given me this woman, I never would have done this. And Eve, she, she takes after her husband and starts blaming the serpent. Well, it's his fault. And all of a sudden, you see dysfunction and brokenness and the effects of sin starting to roll through the world. And even in the, in the specific sphere of activity, God created Adam to work and keep. And guess what's going to happen now? Thorns and thistles as he works and keeps. God created Eve to be a life giver. And guess what's going to happen? Pain in childbearing. This thing that God created you to do, it's not going to be painful. It's going to be dysfunctional. It's not going to work right. And you and I now, we feel all of that. If you've ever felt loneliness or shame or addiction or confusion or disordered desires or infertility or broken relationships or broken marriages or broken homes, all of it comes from Genesis chapter 3. But thankfully, that's not where the story stops. And here's the last thing that I want you to see, which is the redemption of man and woman. And here's how the story should have gone. (coughs) Excuse me. Here's how the story should have gone. Eve, if she sinned, Adam, first of all, should have been right there protecting the garden and guarding the garden and crushing the head of the serpent. 
But even if he wasn't there, let's just say for the sake of argument that he was off in the woods somewhere else and she was there and she sinned, and then Adam found out, what was the thing that God said would happen? The day you eat of this, you will what? You will surely die. Like you're going to die. The the clock on your life is going to start ticking. And so what Adam should have done in that moment is gone to God the Father, not ran from him, not hid, but gone to God the Father and said, hey, here's what happened. And she sinned. And I'm asking you, this was my responsibility. This, the, I was the one that you placed to be the guard over the garden. I'm asking you to take my life in place of hers. I'm asking you to take my life. I will take her punishment. Let her go free. That's what love in that moment would have looked like. Not blame shifting, but taking, taking the, the route of self-sacrifice and saying, God, take me and let her live instead. And, and Adam here fails in many ways to do the job that he was created to do. He's not initiating, he's not leading, he's not protecting, he's not guarding, he's not cultivating the, the, the heart of his wife. He's doing nothing of the sort. But friends, there's a story in scripture of another Adam who scripture refers to as the second Adam, Jesus, who all the ways where this Adam fails in Genesis chapter three, this other Adam, Jesus, gets it all right. What Jesus does is amazing is instead of, of standing in the garden of of Gethsemane and being complicit with our sin, he had made it to that point in his life, and though he was tempted in every way as we are, he had not yet sinned. And what this Jesus does is he says to the Father, hey, not my will, but your will be done. And what he does is actually lay his life down for his bride, the church. And on the cross, Jesus takes our sin upon himself. He doesn't blame shift. He takes the blame in our place. And it's actually through the death of this second Adam, Jesus, who crushes the head of the serpent in his death, that you and I are forgiven, are made whole again, are brought back into right relationship with God. And friends, we're brought back into right relationship with one another. That's why we read in Galatians that it says, there is therefore now neither male nor female, nor slave nor free, nor Jew nor Greek. Like all those old dividing walls of hostility, Jesus through the cross and resurrection, he abolishes those walls of hostility and he reconciles us back to God and back to one another. And he is in the process of teaching men how to be men and women how to be women. He's teaching boys how to grow up to be men who are good men who use their strength to bless and protect and serve. And he's teaching women how to, how to be life givers that, that, that bring life and help everywhere they go. Jesus is in the process of redeeming our gender. And what we see happening in Genesis, this wedding between Adam and Eve, it's actually a picture of the way that God feels about you even today, even now in all of your brokenness and all of your baggage. Paul says that this mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. That what we see happening in the Garden of Eden is actually a picture that God placed there so that you and I would get a sense of his heart for us. This is a love story that we are a part of. And we in this story are the bride. And he is the lover. We are the ones that get the benefit. He's the one who initiates. We are the ones that get protected. He is the one who lays his life down for us. We are the ones who caused sin. And he is the one who absorbs our sin in his own body on the cross. This is the good news of the gospel. And I just want to invite you, if you're a man in the room, or if you're a boy in the room, 
that Jesus is now your example for how you can grow up to harness your masculinity and harness that holy aggression that God has given you and aim it in the world in all of the right ways to the blessing and benefit and protection of women and children and for the good of our society. That's what God has placed you here for. Embrace it. Hold on to it. Where you've neglected how to do that, repent of it. Ladies, God has placed you here as life givers. And the way you see the church joyfully responding to Jesus, man, let that be a picture for you of how you use your femininity femininity to support and bless and come along and be a lifesaver and help. Use what God has wired in you down to the very bones for the good and blessing of this world. I want to invite you. Would you stand with me?